0: Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology and high-regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tikowski. Hello, Tech on Reg listeners. Um, A few weeks ago, I was perusing my daily law-related news when something really caught my attention. For those of you who don't know, Robin Hood's been in the midst of a little nasty litigation uh, out in California. And in connection with the Robin Hood outage-related securities litigation currently pending in California federal court, I read an order the likes of which I had really never seen. The judge in that case, Judge James Donato, in ruling on a rather routine motion to appoint counsel for a class of investors, actually denied the lawyer's request for appointment. Okay, why did he do that? Well, according to Judge Donato, the players asking to be appointed were all too similar. Repeat players, he called them, and they all happened to be dudes. So, as a practicing attorney, I'd never seen an order like that. Rock on, I thought to myself, I'm going to post this on LinkedIn, and I am going to annotate in red. So today's guest was not only a mentor to me as a young lawyer, but she also started rocking the boat before rocking the boat was on trend. Nicole Auerbach, managing partner at Valorum Law and co-founder of Elevate Next, I am just thrilled and delighted to have you on the show today. Nicole, welcome. Thank you so much, Jared. So nice to be here. So it's been a long time since we've worked together. Nicole, we were were just chatting before we started uh, recording today about how I think it's, I think we're going on 12 years
1: since we've worked actually like alongside one another, right? That's right. I left big law at the same firm that you were at in 2008. So it's been, yeah, a long time. Uh, And Nicole, you may not remember this,
0: or you may not have even known this uh, to begin with, but I think one of your pieces of litigation was one of the very first I was ever assigned to back in the days when we all had assigning attorneys for little baby lawyers at Catton It was one of the first matters I ever worked on in like a real way. And the very first like real grown up lawyer brief that I ever wrote was for you on one of your matters. It's not important which matter it was, but the experience experience of working with you in connection with that brief is actually one I'll never forget because it was the first time anyone actually sat me down and was like, these are the good things that you did, and these were the terrible things that you did that I never want to see you do again, and if you do something like this for one of the dudes who sit down the hall from me, they are not going to have this conversation with you right now not going to let you work on their cases anymore. I don't know if you realize what a conversation like that, the type of impact that had on me as a young lawyer. I was like, oh my gosh, there's somebody here who actually cares, who actually cares about the development of my skills as an attorney, and who's kind of giving me a heads up about the environment in which I'm operating. And that was incredibly meaningful to me. So I don't think I've ever told you that, but now I'm doing it in front of a lot, a lot of listeners in like a very public way.
1: First of all, that's so, so thank you because you know that's an amazing story, and I. I do remember working with you. I do not remember that ex- you know that experience specifically, and I'm racking my brain to think about what the case was. So you'll have to tell me off-air at some point. But by the but way, that the actually, you don't
0: remember the reason you don't remember is because you did that for everybody, so it doesn't so, nice. so it doesn't stick out in your mind, <laughs> but it definitely sticks um, out in mine.
1: I'm so glad. So I love quote unquote origin stories or, you know, did you know that you were influential in this? Because I think it's, um, especially I tell women, you know, you don't always have like this formal mentor where you say, hey, will you mentor me? But you take little snippets or little experiences from various people who, who, you know don't necessarily even realize that they're doing something that's going to have an impact on them I'm so glad that it did, and i'm so glad that you told me about that first of all, you're making me feel really, really old because you know I, I, I think these are stories that you tell to people you know who who have been work you know working for sixty years and you say, remember has was, not for
0: for, uh, for for those of us listening at home, it has not been sixty years <laughs> not, not
1: even <laughs> not even close. But, That's so great. I I really appreciate it. And especially because I think I see what you've become, right? Like I see where you've been, what you've learned, what you've done. It is not because of that one conversation, I assure you. But the fact that you remember it tells me that you have, you know, embodied what I was hoping to impart, you know, in terms of this is how you navigate life. And this is how you treat other people in order to have them navigate life. So I'm thrilled to see where you've been. And I'm glad that I might have had, you know, a point zero 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 one percent influence on that.
0: Well, it's not a might, it's, it's a did. Um, and which is why I think maybe a year or two into, uh, you know, my work at that firm, you were like, you know what, I've got bigger and better ideas than the way big law is, is doing work. And you were like, I'm out, I'm out of here. And you went and you founded a very innovative law firm for the time, Valorum. And now you've, you know, pivoted once again. Listeners to my show have heard me talk about legal innovation and legal tech uh, a lot. We talk about how technology is changing all sorts of industries from finance and cannabis and sex and all of the ways technology is just completely disrupting. Law is one of the most interesting to me, not just because it's where I've chosen to, you know, obtain a license and earn money and feed my family, but it's also because it's one of the most rigid and difficult and, like, sometimes frustrating places to to operate And that's not not from a technology standpoint. We're going to get into, you know, why we're talking on the show today also, but for an industry that's been so rigid in all of its habits, whether that's the use of technology, its treatment and compensation uh, of diverse talent, both, you know, women and people of color, uh, the way the business model just operates in general. When people say the wheels of justice move slowly, I don't think that, that saying could be more apt for just the business of law. What do you think?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I, you know, when I became a lawyer and I was working in a large firm, you're busy. So you think things are moving at fast pace, you feel, because you're running around quickly, because you have a lot of work to do and there's a lot of expectations. But it really wasn't until I started Valorum with some other people in 2008 to bring this you know, new way of thinking about the law, new way of actually billing, using alternative fee arrangements to the market, that I realized how entrenched people are in just keeping things the same. And, you know... Because I thought, hey, lawyers are the ones who bring about sort of you know legislative change, and we are the people in the system. And we we are lawyers become judges, and that's how you move the society forward. But the truth is, the truth is that lawyers are really risk averse, and they don't like to change, and they will hold on like you know, with white knuckles to whatever it is that makes them comfortable or that puts food on the table or whatever, however they look at it, you know, these structures that just, Really, really take a lot of effort to move, and that's unfortunate because it actually has a very huge effect on on everything, on on industry, on startups, on um, access to justice for people who who don't have the type of money to you know hire traditionally high paid lawyers, etc. So, yeah, it's kind of remarkable.
0: So you're a woman in law, and now you're also a woman in legal tech. Uh, with Elevate Next. And I think it was described, what, as one of the largest law companies in the world? Was that your phrase that I read somewhere?
1: Yeah. So Elevate Next is, is a law firm, kind of an, I say, an enlightened law firm, if you will, that is affiliated and sits next to and and in certain parts of the country is part of a law company called Elevate Services. And Elevate is, you know, a 1,200 person global law company that does all different things for law departments and law firms that touch on the business of law.
0: So as a woman in law and as a woman in technology... Nicole, you know as well as I do that the statistics regarding diversity, all sorts of diversity in the practice of law are, let's face it, um, uh, terrible and horrible and embarrassing. I don't know nicer words to use. I probably have even harsher words to use, but sometimes some of my listeners have sensitive ears, so I have to be sensitive to that. There's sort of been... I would say, a circular, never-ending discussion within industry about what to do, and we know that the numbers are bad, and we know that retention's bad, and we know that the comp numbers aren't what they ought to be. The, the Jones Day compensation lawsuit that's like sort of an ongoing saga right now is sort of like a, a nice headline tidbit sort of illustrating the problem in a very public way. If everyone knows what the right thing to do is, why don't they do it, Nicole? What, what has your experience taught you?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I think it goes back to what I said before, which is just change is, is difficult. And, you know, there's millions of studies on the psychological aspects of, you know, why that is. So I think that people gravitate towards what they're used to. So in the past, when the legal profession was predominantly men, been, you know, coming out of the graduating classes, it was just predominantly men. You know, that was sort of the foundation of most of these large law firms and similarly companies, where they would just naturally gravitate to people who look like them and people with similar backgrounds. And I think as that started to change in society, so instead of it being sort of over bias, it became kind of implicit bias, which was that people don't really stop and think about it. They think, hey, I have this matter and I just worked with the person who looks like me, often a white male. And I'm just going to grab him for this matter again, because we've worked together well, that's easy. And I think change really requires very specific mental thought beforehand. Um, I think when you want to make systemic change, you have to be thinking about it daily. So when you're building a team, you have to literally say to yourself, I'm building this team. Naturally, if I didn't think about it, I'd have x y and z but now i have to think about it and i need r q and and p so i think that's the reason why it just people know what the right thing is but you know when you're in a hurry when you need something quickly you just do what came naturally and unfortunately that's a whole bunch of you know white guys Typically, doing the same thing, working with other white guys, and I work with a lot of white guys, and I love. Same. I love them. But I, I also you know, do. You know, um, you know, yeah, trust
0: yeah. trusted partners. Every once in a while, like they keep me around because I keep them woke. That's literally <laughs> something that's been said to me. But do you think yeah. part? Of, do you think part of it is? still a little bit of like denial or frustration i was once sitting in a a meeting um at an organization that i used to chair a woman's group for uh literally listening to a coo saying there is no unconscious bias in our compensation numbers because we don't take that those factors into account when we're making compensation decisions and i sat there and thought to myself so you're not conscious of your unconscious bias. Cool story, bro. Right. It,
1: right. It's like your known unknowns or your unknown knowns or whatever Don Don Ronsfeld said. Um yeah, so that so I think that what people don't realize, because again, you know, I do think that there was a period of time where it was totally overt and nobody really hid what they were feeling. And I do think that there are some people who think that they are not biased. And they don't realize it until it's actually pointed out to them. But what I think most people don't realize is things like basing a compensation decision, you know, like what raise is so and so going to get this year? You may give them a really great raise that year, but if it's based on a percentage of what their salary has been to date, and historically their salary has been less than it should be, or less compared to somebody in, you know, the same position, but looks different, then that is going to be compounded over the lifetime of that worker, right? So often for women and minorities, when they started out in the first couple of years, their their compensation was suppressed. And you, so even if they get really great, 10% raises every year, which is well over the cost of living adjustment, right? They're still not necessarily going to make it back to what they would have and should have done. So I think that's unconscious bias, but I think a lot of people don't even realize that that's, you know, they think, well, I'm making the decision now and I've just made a good decision. But it, you know, it, it, isn't just a decision in a vacuum. I guess that's, that's my point.
0: Yeah. So my, my go-to line whenever I end up inevitably in sort of debates and conversations with people is, so you're telling me that you're not conscious of your unconscious bias. Yeah. Just say it out loud, you know, just say it out loud and tell, and tell me how, how listening to that
1: makes you feel exactly right. So my line when I was young and would go to court and the senior male on the other side would typically want to, you know, like, I don't know, rattle me, I think, was I often, you know, or I'd I'd go to a deposition and and the guy on the other side would say, oh, I thought you were the court reporter. And I finally just decided that my go-to line on that was like, oh, I thought you were. And they I love them. it. I love it. And, and so, yeah, you have to just—you have to point these things out, right? And I think it takes some
0: intestinal fortitude to be able to do that. You have to be confident and That's secure true. enough in whatever role you're playing, whether you're sitting with a client, whether you're sitting with, you know, a superior who does make comp decisions for you or controls your marketing budget or whatnot. Yeah. but you mentioned court. So let's circle back mm-hmm. and, and talk about court. We talked about how change is difficult and you're right. Change is difficult, but sometimes it needs to happen anyway. So what are going to be the catalysts to give the repeat players, the kicks and the rear ends that they need in order to help effectuate change? We had a great example of one of those kicks in the rear end. I think from Judge Donato in, you know, a federal courthouse in California on a very high-profile piece of securities litigation. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about the order because I'm a nerd and I read these for fun, mm-hmm. and that's what I do. Uh, but then also, um, you know, what other examples you've seen and experienced in your career? And whether or not those have been impactful, so I guess let 's start with let 's start with the order itself. so I paraphrased it a little bit at at the beginning, but I want to read some quotes um, and i nicole I, I think this is going to be one of those like i 'm going to read and you 're going to react, and then we 're going <laughs> to talk about it. So basically, uh, what happened is when lawyers want to represent uh, classes uh, of people, in this case, it was a class of investors, they don't just get to do that automatically, they've got to ask uh, courts for permission to do that. There's all sorts of technical federal rules that govern the process by which that happens and criteria that needs to be met. So in this case, a very routine motion from a very reputable uh, group of plaintiffs' lawyers who had been class counsel for countless classes, very, and no one's questioning their abilities or experience. But what agitated Judge Donato in connection with this case was that they proposed a class of lawyers that were, in his mind, quote, repeat players, So the court said, and I quote, the court has no doubt that fill-in-the-blank law firm would provide highly professional, sophisticated representation to plaintiffs. Even so, the court is not prepared to appoint them at this time. The court is, quote, concerned about a lack of diversity in the proposed lead counsel, for example, all four of the proposed lead counsel are men, which is also true for the proposed seven lawyers for the executive committee and liaison counsel. Nicole, have you ever seen a judge publish that in an order?
1: Yeah, it's few and far between. So I, I think you know, it it is few and far between. I don't think this is the first time. I think maybe it's the second time that I remember. I also just anecdotally remember that the former chief judge of the Northern District of Illinois, Ruben Castillo, I don't think in a specific case order, but in a general order of the court noted the lack of diversity as well. Um, And I think it's I think it's so rare what's particularly rare is the rejection of you know sometimes it's just a it's just a side note and so you know that the judge has taken note of it and usually it goes viral and people kind of you know Pay attention for a couple minutes, um, but in this instance, like the, the judge actually took took action, and that's the part that I love, and I have a feeling you love too, because motion denied try again. oh yeah exactly like you know why isn't that happening routinely? like why is that making the topic of discussion here? you know that that is just how it should be routinely because if it happens enough, then you know what? people make that change before they present their lead, their lead council motion. You know, I'm going to take a look at that. And same, same with, you know, of course, as a private client, you get to choose – who your team is going to be. So I think it's slightly different because I don't know that judges would go as far as to say, I am rejecting your choice of counsel, private litigant who's paying, as opposed to a a public class that you're asking the court to certify. But nonetheless, it's the same concept. Like, why is that not being brought up or things being rejected so that people understand that, hey, you know what? If you're not going to do this on your own, I'm going to help you do this. And I think actually the same for clients. You know, clients are the ones who hold the purse. They have the ability to, you know, effectuate change by saying, hey, I'm not going to hire you, or I'm not going to, you're not going to have this team represent us for this matter unless you diversify.
0: So one of the things that Judge Donato pointed out and published in his order was an observation that the attorneys running this litigation should reflect the diversity of the proposed national class. And I think that does sort of speak to the issue that you observed, where a judge would have a much more difficult time sort of making a ruling like this or opining on it at all in a piece of litigation with a private client who has chosen his or her or its own counsel and is paying by the hour. This is a very different dynamic, but I also think very insightful and reflective of, you claim to want to represent this large swath of investors throughout the country, they don't all look like you, in case you didn't know or didn't realize. Right. So overall, just an impressive, compelling, move that actually forced this law firm to refile its petition. So I didn't do a follow up post on LinkedIn because you know I was sort of like waiting to talk to you about it and savoring it. But the firm that whose motion was denied did reapply. Uh, they refiled their motion. I believe they added uh, two women uh, to the team and I believe their motion um, has since been uh, approved and, and the new, newly comprised team has been appointed. So we actually saw change and something positive happen out of a judge standing up and slapping him on the wrist. Um, I can't imagine, I mean, it was very public and very much written about in the legal publications. It's like, ouch, that's kind of embarrassing, no? Neither of us would want our, our firms to be on the receiving end of an order like that.
1: No, you don't, because, of course, I guarantee it's a, good, it's a very reputable good firm, but I guarantee if you like dig into their website, there's a lot of talk about how diverse they are and how attention to these issues is really important, and that's a differentiator for, for them. And, and so, no, you wouldn't want that. But the truth is that order could apply to you know I would say hundreds 98%. and hundreds of cases. Oh yeah, ninety eight percent of the docket that you know goes goes to to courts easily. And I also think um, so. I don't know the ethnicity of Judge Genato. I believe that he's a white male, but I don't know that. But I know he's a male. But I think particularly when it's coming from people who are not the ones in the minority class, right? It, it it actually means that much more. I think that's what's happening right now like with the Black Lives movement and and the protests that are going on is that you see so many people, you know, who are Caucasian or who are Latino or, you know, other ethnicities who are coming out and su- and and supporting that. And I think that that is you know i think that that moves i don't know movements faster because i think when you're hearing something from somebody who looks like you and you're you know like looks like a white male in in a high position like a judge who's making a determination i think that other white males Think about that advice differently than if it was coming from, let's just say, a female judge who was saying, hey, you should, you should diversify your team,
0: right? There's no doubt that had this order been published by um, either uh, a woman or a person of color, there would be a degree of it discounted. Wrongfully discounted, but discounted yeah. nonetheless. And it would have been accompanied with a private eye roll somewhere. Right. And it would have been the subject of conversation over, you know, some some brown liquor at, at, at a pub. So this was a really great example of an action that sort of, at least we hope, jumpstarts and motivates and encourages other jurists um, and those in the positions to, you know, put together these teams to pause and say, am I doing the right thing? Or am I going to similarly be the ire of some federal judge? I don't want to be embarrassed. And whether or not that's the right motivation, who cares, in my view? Like who cares what the what the right motivation is as long as the result is right. Right. So maybe this is what we need to jumpstart actual change, because this was maybe one of the most impactful orders that I've read that resulted in immediate change and diversification of a legal team. Um, before we started recording, um, we were talking about some other sort of catalysts of change that are happening in you know our profession and environment right now. And I know everyone is so sick of talking about COVID. I'm sick of talking about it too, but like, it's our lives. So that's what we're going to be talking about for a little bit, everybody. So, Nicole, you had some interesting uh, observations about what you see COVID doing for legal and and remote work and would love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for remote work, what this did was it, kind of leapfrogged over what would be a gradual change over time where more and more people were working from home but you know some companies tolerated it some didn't and it was you know the needle didn't move significantly from where it was you know say, the day before the shutdown orders occurred for COVID. I think the fact that everybody had to just instantly change and adapt to that quickly shows how quickly people actually can change when, when they have to. And that change can often be for the better. Right, it's not a hundred percent for the better. There's a lot of instances that we've we've spoken about when you have young children, perhaps at home, and um, the ability to juggle the work and and the school and the remote learning. All of that is very difficult. But by and large, the workforce has successfully moved to remote, and I think that's going to stay. I mean, I think even after, you know, if there's a vaccine, hopefully sooner than later. Um, I think that. Some people will return to work, but the vast majority will will do some sort of remote or hybrid type of commute. I think culturally,
0: that's a big shift for big law in a place that, you know, whether they, whether they say it out loud or, you know, implicitly believe it, has traditionally been like a FaceTime place. They want to physically see you there. They want to see you sort of grinding it out. And even though I think the industry has become a little less rigid on that over years. By and large, a young associate's dedication, for example, was certainly measured, at least in part, on how many hours they clocked in that office and how often, you know, random partner A, B, or C walked by and saw them, you know, grinding it out till the wee hours. Say what you will, FaceTime was a thing, is a thing, and it was probably still a thing right up until, you know, lockdown in March. So the shift to virtual, in my view, is for legal especially, a really large culture shift. Yeah. One of the things that, you know, particularly as a woman, as a mom, I have three young kids, you know, you mentioned before that for better or for worse, um, kids are learning at home right now. You know, my my kids' schools, just an announcement came out confirming that they were starting the year with remote learning. Um, many uh, experienced what, you know, the the spring semester looked like uh, earlier this year with what remote learning looked like when schools were largely unprepared to do that. Hopefully the fall is a little bit better, but let's face it, by in large part, and I'm not going to speak for, uh, you know, every family out there because every family dynamic is so different, but by and large, you know, the stress and, and the burden of making sure, you know, the kids are learning and the kids are fed and, you know, supervising that environment had and will continue to disproportionately affect women. And that's sort of just the reality. What do you think is going to come of that? Do you believe that those stressors falling primarily on women will just be another excuse to not invite women to the table? What do you think, what do you think that means for us?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I do fear that in the short term, while kids are still at home and not able to leave for the day and be in a school environment, I do think it di- disproportionately falls on women and I do think it's going to negatively impact women, particularly with you know smaller children who aren't self sufficient in order to navigate that remote learning completely on their own. And I, I've seen that with a lot of my colleagues. The good thing is, although I think remote working is going to remain after a vaccine, I don't think remote learning is. I think as soon as it those safe, kids back to school. <laughs> Yeah, get them out of there, right? And and for the kids' sake too, right? It's this is not healthy oh, yes. for them either. It's but, it's but certainly for all of our sakes. Yeah, exactly. Um, having said that, what do I think is going to happen? I think what's going to happen is what has happened from you know the moment that women entered the workforce that they will work twice as hard. In order to get their work done to the quality that they want it to be done, and you know, above and beyond is typically what tends to happen, um, which means that they will have a difficult time perhaps like during the day doing all of the work that they would get done during the day. And then they will end up when their kids go to sleep or somebody else can, you know, kind of weigh in on some of the opportunities to to help out with childcare that they're then going to go back to work and be working into the long hours. So from a mental health standpoint, from a physical standpoint, I think it's going to be very difficult for, for women. All right. Well, for those of you
0: listening, you heard it here. Take care of yourselves, ladies, because I think we've got sort of a long road ahead of us. I would just add that I am, I feel particularly fortunate to have sort of like the support network uh, around me with my young children. Um, My spouse is incredibly supportive, takes on more than his fair share of responsibility when it comes to the kids. But for those of you out there who either aren't supporting your spouse or think that she's okay, she's probably not. She's probably not okay. She totally needs help. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got to balance it all and think about our careers, you know, simultaneously. Because I know for for a lot of the lawyers out there, the work hasn't gone away. And in a lot of ways, it's exponentially increased um, as a result of the pandemic. And as all of our days and nights start blurring into one another, I think, you know, Keeping at the front of your mind that you know the the women in your life are are carrying a much larger mental load uh, than you might than you might realize. So, Nicole, and we're Mary,
1: right?
0: yes, yes, yes. Everybody is right. for sure. Everybody is for sure. But I'm talking about women right now, <laughs> so I, I think oh, you know fine. we're. Right. I think we just naturally tend to think about things and permutations of things because we're wired differently and that's biological and that's okay. So, you know, we're, we're trained to make sure that everyone uh, around us is situated and that goes from our families. And that also includes our work environments too. You know, I definitely feel like office mom sometimes, uh, and I'm sure that you've felt similarly uh, in your roles. Nicole, I'm not going to speak for you. I would
1: just be guessing. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. It's a role that that I relish, though, I think. Yeah, gratifying
0: in some of the best possible ways as well. So we're nearing the end of our time, unfortunately. So if there was anything you wanted to leave listeners with, Nicole, whether it's about women in law, legal innovation, or what a badass Judge Donato is, what would, what would you like to leave us with?
1: So I, what I would say is I am so excited about where we are in the legal industry right now, which unfortunately the catalyst behind that is this radical change in the pandemic and the need to do things differently. But for me, you know, where what my firm is doing in conjunction with what Elevate is doing is we, you know, we are trying to help. Companies and law firms actually figure out how to navigate when their budgets are getting cut, how to do things more efficiently, how to how to leapfrog into you know the modern era, if you will. And a lot of times that is work because it takes time. That is work that falls to the back burner. And right now it can't fall to the back burner. People Cannot discount their way out of this, you know, budget crisis and economic crisis. And so, for me, I think it's a really exciting time in legal tech. I think it's a really exciting time in the legal industry. I think the, you know, the old structures that we had are going to fall by the wayside naturally in a lot of different ways. And I think people are just forced to, t- to talk and look at and make change um, a lot quicker than they have in the past. So my hope is that you know when we get out of this and we look back in say five years, that we'll think all of the horrible things that happened with the p- pandemic, but we'll also point to it as you know the silver lining is that it enabled us to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm really happy to be a part of that.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a very, very busy woman. Um, and thank you guys for tuning in once again. Um, thanks again to our uh, sponsors and uh, our promoters, uh, Actuate Law, Cointech, and Investnet Yodli. Couldn't do it without you guys. Uh, until next time. Thanks, Nicole. It's been a pleasure. Thank
1: you. This was great. Be well.